Hey kids, it's the Brit Knowledge Show, where you'll see that your mom's a holy moly. You won't learn anything except moaning on your neighbor's ring. That's what you get when you listen to What the Brit. You'll realize that we're all just pieces of shit. Soon bright with pooping rats on his ass. Me, why I'm so high? Drop the pants and show off your big giant ballroom. Use it the place where we can all play together forever and ever. Here is Brit sitting on the beach. Hi again. A year ago, I wrote my I Quit segment, and I read it to y'all. Well, here's an update. I do not miss the cubicle life one bit. I do miss some of the co-workers. I miss having a cool title, and of course, the money. But screw living a scheduled life on someone else's timeline, stuck indoors, salivating at an image of a palm tree on a postcard. For my working years doing accounting, many holidays were missed. Overtime was non-existent because I had a salary, and weekends weren't even guaranteed. I've managed to spend a lot less money because I actually cook my own food. I'm not just ordering Uber Eats every time my tummy has a grumble. I also manage my own schedule and can guiltlessly enjoy brunch these days. Speaking of the people that hate the office environment, meet Aaron Swartz. He is one of the most fascinating individuals that I never knew about until after he died. I came across this documentary called The Internet's Own Boy, which randomly autoplayed on YouTube last December. Aaron was a programmer responsible for the framework behind Reddit and a bunch of other cool shit like Markdown, but unless you're super techie, you probably haven't heard of his other stuff. He was also known for being an activist that believed in the freedom of information. He tragically took his own life while undergoing federal prosecution for downloading too many freely accessible academic journals from MIT, his university. So yes, that's correct. He downloaded too many academic journals that were free for him as a student. Although he had yet to do anything aside from download the journals, the act alone was enough to cause the feds to make an example of Aaron. Despite MIT and JSTOR, the digital academic journal storage, not pursuing him. It was just the feds. In this next segment, a blog post from January 18th, 2007, will be read from the words of Aaron, but narrated by Mitch Wilson, this awesome guy from the site Casting Call Club. The day it was posted, Aaron was missing from work, causing alarm amongst all of his office friends, and ultimately it led to his firing from Reddit. This seemingly foreshadows his suicide nearly six years later on January 11th, 2013. Was it the legal battle that he was undergoing? Or was the suicide just inevitable? One won't know, but I hope you enjoy the read from this complex mind. Take it away, Mitch! There is a moment, immediately before life becomes no longer worth living, when the world appears to slow down and all its myriad details suddenly become brightly, achingly apparent. For Aaron, that moment came after exactly one week of pain. Seven days of searing, tormenting agony that poured forth from his belly. Aaron never liked his belly. Growing up he was always fat, surrounded by a family of bellowing, rotund Americans who had a room in their house with wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling cabinets, all entirely filled with bags and boxes of various pre-processed semi-organic assemblages which they used to stuff their faces at all hours of the day. Aaron had body image issues. He'd avoid mirrors because he couldn't bear to look at himself, his large bulbous cheeks obscuring his fine features. He avoided photos, covering his face or ducking out of the way when the click of the camera came. For the same reason, he didn't want to be confronted with the physical evidence of his disgusting nature. Thought he could not go on living 
he had to face the truth. It wasn't until he got away from his family that he discovered his weight was not an immutable characteristic, like the fingerprints he often used about burning off, like the dental records which had caused him so much adolescent anguish, like the DNA he'd heard so much about in school. He would take off his shirt and stare at his stomach in the full-length mirror. It was there, of course, hideous as ever, but also appreciably smaller. Its size, he realised, could change. So Aaron starved himself, cut down from three meals a day to simply two and then to only one. And even that became superfluous most days. Aaron simply wasn't hungry. He watched his stomach dwindle, monitored his progress on the electronic readout of his at-home scale, charted the numbers on his computer, admired the plunging trend lines. He was doing so well, he told all his friends. The secret to losing weight, he would explain, is simply not eating. You just get used to it after a while. He looked at the beggars outside his window and refrained from giving them change so that they too could experience this miracle. He changed the channel when the radio began speaking about starvation in Africa. Starvation isn't so bad, he scoffed. You get used to it after a while. He wondered whether the USDA thrifty food budget could be further reduced. He stopped going out. His friends always wanted to meet him for meals or for drinks, events in which Aaron simply wasn't interested anymore. Before long, Aaron's friends were no longer interested in him. Aaron started eating cafes, ordering a small pastry, sitting in a comfortable chair, listening to the music play over the loudspeakers. Soon, he stopped doing even that. Aaron read on the internet about death. There was a theory, increasingly well-supported, that eating is what killed you. They found that rats on extremely restricted diets, rats who ate very few calories, lived impressively long. They saw the same results with other animals, up to and including chimpanzees. They suspected but could not prove the same was true of humans. Every little bite of food was another step towards death. Aaron started eating again. His appetite grew as slowly as it had declined, but within months he was back to eating three meals a day. Food suddenly gave him pleasure again. He savoured the taste on his tongue. One night, he and his friends decided to try a new restaurant, but when the food came, Aaron couldn't eat it. He thought it smelled funny. He let it sit there, his plate lying on the table, his food seething, untouched. The next night, Aaron couldn't sleep. He'd wake up feeling searing pains in his stomach, as if the food winding its way through his gut had spikes and was tearing out the walls of his intestine. He suffered like this for days, rolling on the floor in agony, unable to resist eating, but every bite he ate causing him unimaginable pain. And still, he could not stop. Five days in, it seemed like the worst had passed. The pains came less frequently, the pains were less intense, he actually slept at night. The day Aaron killed himself, he was awoken by pains, worse than ever. He rolled back and forth in bed as the sun came up, the light streaming through the windows, eliminating the chance for any further sleep. At nine, he was startled by a phone call. The pain subsided, as if quieting down to better hear what the phone might say. It was his boss. He had not been to work all week. He had been fired. Aaron tried to explain himself, but couldn't find the words. He hung up the phone instead. The day Aaron killed himself, he wandered his apartment in a daze. The light streaming through the windows gave everything a golden glow, which had the odd effect of making the filth he'd become surrounded with seem cinematic. Aaron wanted to go outside for one last meal, but he had trouble making the appropriate connections. Jacket, shoes, pants, wallet. 
each lay in a different spot upon the floor. Aaron knew they weren't together. He drew lines connecting them in his mind's eye, but it didn't see to fix anything. His eyes just kept bouncing from one item to another. Finally, he summoned the intelligence to put them on. The world seemed funny afterwards. He noticed the way the key turned in the lock, like a hand rotating in front of his face, an interplay of light and shadow, objects and space. He noticed the packages sitting at his doorstep, begging him to open them, but their labels insisting they were addressed to someone else. He noticed the frail old ladies who refused to obey the walk, don't walk signs and instead walked slowly, backs hunched, across a major intersection. He went to a new cafe across the street, the one place he hadn't been to yet. Light streamed in through the huge picture windows, making the whole place seem bright and airy. So much light, in fact, that the outside seemed to glow, as if the cafe was suspended in the middle of a powerful white light. People held lowered, indistinct conversations. People on his left, people on his right, people behind him. But one conversation seemed to be coming from the ceiling. It might have been a trick of the acoustics. He looked up and saw two speakers staring back at him and listened closely. The cafe was not playing music. It was playing a recording of two people's lowered, indistinct conversation. The day Aaron killed himself, he had a sudden powerful craving for a key lime sugar cookie. It was odd the power the key lime sugar cookie had over him. Aaron did not particularly like limes of any sort. In fact, the idea of an actual, as it was with all fruits, thoroughly disgusted him. He hated how when he ordered sparkling water at fancy restaurants, they would place a lime wedge on top of his glass. How he had to confront the disgusting object every time he tried to take a sip. How touching the lime, even to remove it, it was so disgusting as to be simply out of the question. And yet, here it was, the cookie, with the lime flavour baked into the centre and large transparent grains of sugar embedded in the top, begging for one last taste. The cookie was sold exclusively by a publicly traded chain of cafes that tried hard to seem international, giving itself a foreign-sounding title and printing the names of major world cities on every door, even though it had not expanded much beyond the eastern half of the United States. Aaron purchased the cookie. He knows the way he couldn't quite form the words to request it, simply presenting the cookie in front of the cashier and twitched his head, assuming, correctly, that in context the request would be understood. He noticed the way his hands moved haphazardly to remove the appropriate amount of money from his wallet. He noticed the way his change spilled out onto the counter as he tried to find the quarter with which to complete the transaction. He noticed the way he wobbled as he walked, as he took the now-purchased cookie outside. The day Aaron killed himself, he savoured his one remaining cookie. The sweetness of the embedded sugar grains, the bizarre flavour of what must have been lime. He used his tongue to wipe the remaining crumbs from his teeth, tossed the now empty bag it come in into the trash, and stepped out into the middle of the street. Wow, that was interesting. Kind of grim. One little interesting fact I would like to share with you is that Swartz's blog piece there just showed him eating a key lime sugar cookie as his last meal, the night before Aaron's departure from the world on January 10th, 2013. Aaron's actual last meal was a grilled cheese that he split with his girlfriend. I always find last meals very intriguing. My last meal would likely be a medium rare prime rib with a cob salad and a brownie a la mode. Since Stephen is out, Jacob, my gassy angel of a husband, will be helping me read another piece. This piece is about driving around for fun back in the olden days, which is not really possible nowadays unless you're competing in track racing or something like the Baja 1000. 
This piece is a tribute to the real days of being a part of the Fast and the Furious. Hi, this is Brett 2.0, otherwise known as Jacob Generation 4.6 Cherry Popsicle, and my last meal would be a traditional spaghetti and cantaloupe with a gin and milk to drink. It was a fine morning in March of 1982. The warm weather and clear sky gave promise of an early spring. Buzz had arisen early that morning, impatiently eaten breakfast and gone to the garage. Opening the door, he saw the sunshine bounce off the gleaming hood of his 15-year-old MGB Roadster. After carefully checking the fluid levels, tire pressures, and ignition wires, Buzz slid behind the wheel and cranked the engine, which immediately fired to life. He thought happily the next few hours he would spend with the car, but his happiness was clouded. It was not as easy as it used to be. A dozen years ago, things had been unchanging. First, there were a few modest safety and emissions improvements required on new cars. Gradually, these became more comprehensive. The governmental requirements reached an adequate level, but they didn't stop. They continued and became more and more stringent. Now there were very few of the older models left, through natural deterioration and other reasons. The Roadster was warmed up now and Buzz left the garage, hoping that this early in the morning there would be no trouble. He kept an eye on the instruments as he made his way down into the valley. The valley roads were no longer used very much. The small farms were all owned by doctors and the roads were somewhat narrow for the MSVs, or modern safety vehicles. The safety crusade had been well done at first. The few harebrained schemes were quickly ruled out and a sense of rationality developed. But in the late 70s, with no major wars, cancer cured, and social welfare straightened out, the politicians needed a new cause, and once again they turned toward the automobile. The regulations concerning safety became tougher. Cars became larger, heavier, and less efficient. They consumed gasoline so voraciously that the U.S. had to become a major ally with the Arabian countries. The new cars were hard to stop or maneuver quickly, but they would save your life usually, in a 50-mile-an-hour crash. With 200 million cars on the road, however, few people ever drove that fast anymore. Buzz zipped quickly to the valley floor, dodging the frequent potholes which had developed from neglect of the seldom-used roads. The engine sounded spot-on, and the entire car had a tight, good feeling about it. He negotiated several quick S-curves and reached 6,000 RPM in third gear before backing off the next turn. He didn't worry about the police down here. No, not the cops. Despite the extent of the safety program, it was essentially a good idea, but unforeseen complications had arisen. People became accustomed to cars which went undamaged in 10-mile-per-hour collisions. They gave even less thought than before to the possibility of being injured in a crash. As a result, they tended to worry less about clearances and rights-of-way, so that the accident rate went up at a steady 8% every year. But the damages and injuries actually decreased, so the government was happy, the insurance industry was happy, and most of the car owners were happy. The owners of the non-MSV cars were kept busy dodging the less careful MSV drivers, and the result of this mismatch left very few of the older cars in existence. If they weren't crushed between two 6,000-pound sleds on the highway, they were quietly priced into the junkyard by the insurance peddlers. And worst of all, they became targets. Buzz was well into his act now, speeding through the twisting valley roads with all the skill he could muster, to the extent that he'd forgotten his earlier worries. Where the road was unbroken, he would power around the turns in well-controlled oversteer, and where the sections were potholed, he saw them as devious chicanes to be mastered. He left the ground briefly, going over one of the old wooden bridges, and later ascertained that the roadster would still hit 110 on the long stretch between the old Hanlon and Grove Farms. He was just beginning to wind down when he saw it. 
there in his mirror. A late model MSV with hand-painted designs covering most of its body. One of the few modifications allowed on post-1980 cars. Buzz hoped it was a tourist or a wayward driver who got lost looking for a gas station. But now the MSV driver had spotted the Roadster, and with the whoosh of a well-muffled, well-cleansed exhaust, he started the chase. It hadn't taken long for the less responsible element among drivers to discover that their new MSVs could inflict great damage on an older car and go unscathed themselves. As a result, some drivers would go looking for the older cars in secluded areas, bounce them off the road or into a bridge abutment, and then speed off undamaged, relieved of whatever frustrations caused this kind of behavior. Police seldom patrolled these out-of-the-way places, their attentions being required more urgently elsewhere, so it became a great sport for some drivers. Buzz wasn't too worried yet. This had happened a few times before, and unless the MSV driver was an exceptionally good one, the roadster could be called upon to elude the other driver without too much difficulty. Yet something bothered him about this gaudy MSV in his mirror. But what was it? Planning carefully, Buzz let the other driver catch up to within a dozen yards or so, and then suddenly shot off down the road to the right. The MSV driver stood on his brakes, skidding 400 feet down the road, made a lumbering U-turn, and set off once again after the roadster. The roadster had gained a quarter mile in this manner, and Buzz was thankful for the radial tires and front and rear anti-roll bars he'd put in the car a few years back. He was flying along the twisting road, downshifting, cornering, accelerating, and all the while planning his route ahead. He was confident that if he couldn't outrun the MSV, then he could at least hold it off for another hour or more, at which time the MSV would be quite low on gas. But what was it that kept bothering him about the other car? They reached a straight section of the road, and Buzz opened it up all the way and held it. The MSV was quite a way back, but not so far that Buzz couldn't distinguish the tall antenna standing up from the back bumper. Antenna, not police, but perhaps a citizen's band radio in the MSV? He quaked slightly and hoped it was not. The straight section was coming to an end now, and Buzz put off braking to the last fraction of a second and then sped through a 75-mile-per-hour right-hander, gaining 10 more yards on the MSV. But less than a quarter mile ahead, another huge MSV was slowly pulling across the road into a stop. It was a CB set. The other driver had a cohort in the chase. Now Buzz was in trouble. He stayed on the gas until within a few hundred feet, and then he banked hard and fainted passing to the left. The MSV crawled in that direction, and Buzz slipped by in the right, bouncing heavily over a stone in the shoulder. The two MSVs set off in hot pursuit, almost colliding in the process. Buzz turned right at the first crossroad and then made a quick left, hoping to be out of sight of his pursuers. And in fact, he traveled several minutes before spotting one of them on the main road parallel to his lane. At the same time, the other appeared in the mirror from around the last corner. By now, they were beginning to climb the hills on the far side of the valley, and Buzz pressed on for all he was worth, praying that the straining engine would stand up. He lost track of one MSV when the main road turned away, but could see the other and behind him on occasion. Climbing the old Monument Road, Buzz hoped to have some time to get over the top and down the old dirt road to the right, which would be too narrow for his pursuers. Climbing, straining, the water temperature rising, using the entire road, flailing the shift lever back and forth from third to fourth, not touching the brakes but scrubbing off the necessary speed in the corners, reaching the peak of the mountain where the lane to the old fire tower went off to the left, but coming up on the other side of the hill was the second MSV he'd lost track of. No time to get to his dirt road. He made a panic turn left onto the fire tower road, but spun in some loose gravel and struck a tree with a glancing blow to his right fender. He came to a stop on the opposite side of the road. The engine stalled. Hurriedly, he pushed the starter while the overheated engine slowly came back to life. He engaged first gear and sped off up the road, just as the first MSV turned the corner. Dazed though he was, Buzz had the advantage of a very narrow road lined on both sides with trees, and he made the most of it. The road twisted constantly, and he stayed in second, with the engine between 5,000 and 5,500. The crash hadn't seemed to hurt anything, and he was pulling away from the MSV. But to where? It hit him suddenly that the road dead-end 
ended at the fire tower, no place to go but back. Still, he pushed on, and at the top of the hill, drove quickly to the far end of the clearing, turned the roadster around, and waited. The first MSV came flying into the clearing and aimed itself at the sitting roadster. Buzz grabbed reverse gear, backed up slightly to faint, stopped, and then backed up at full speed. The MSV, expecting the roadster to change direction, veered the wrong way and slid to a stop up against a tree. Buzz was off again down the fire tower road, and the undamaged MSV set off in pursuit. Buzz's predicament was unenviable. He was going full tilt down the twisting blacktop with a solid MSV coming up after him and an equally solid MSV coming down after him. On he went, however, braking hard before each turn and then accelerating back up to 45 in between. Coming down to a particularly tight turn, he saw the MSV coming around it from the other direction and stood on the brakes. The sudden extreme pressure in the brake lines was too much for the rear brake line, which had been twisted somewhat in a spin, and it broke, robbing Buzz of his brakes. In sheer desperation, he pulled the handbrake as tightly as it would go and rammed the gear lever into first, popping the clutch as he did so. The back end locked solid and broke away, spinning him off to the side of the road and miraculously into some bushes, which brought the car to a halt. As he was collecting his senses, Buzz saw the two MSVs, unable to stop in time, ram each other head-on at over 40 miles an hour. It was a long time before Buzz had the roadster rebuilt to its original pristine condition of before the chase. It was an even longer time before he went back into the valley for a drive. Now it was only in the very early hours of the day when most people were still sleeping off the effects of the good life. And when he saw in the papers that the government would soon be requiring cars to be capable of withstanding 75 mile per hour head-on collisions, he stopped driving the MGB Roadster altogether. A Nice Morning Drive by Richard S. Foster, originally printed in Road & Track Magazine, November 1973.